Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register now at ndc-oslo.com. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1282, with guest Alec Lozarescu. Recorded Wednesday, March 16th, 2016. Hey now, it's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here for .NET Rocks. Aren't we, Richard? We are here, and I'm excited, excited, excited. I'm not as excited as Mark Dunn. Nobody's as excited as Mark well, Dunn. Yeah, he he always got excited, but he always said it like this. Man, I am so excited. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a flashback. I don't know how many people would even remember the first yeah. 50 shows. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what else do I have to report around here? Not much. I have new glasses. Oh, no kidding. So do I. Yeah, this getting really middle-aged thing. So I'm, I now, the, the, the optometrist or the ophthalmologist said, look, I'm going to give you these, my second set of progressives, mm-hmm. but you need to start wearing glasses specifically for being on the computer. Yeah. Ech. That are just set at a focal length so that I can look at the screen easily. Well, at least it's easy that you can just keep them at the computer and right, switch that's exactly when you right. sit down and switch again when you get up. <sighs> Yeah, it's just the whole, what, how did I get to this point, man, where I'm switching glasses? Well, the alternative is no glasses, right? Is <laughs> just being blind. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. All right. Well, here we are. I got something interesting, Richard, for Better Know Framework, so roll the music. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Okay, this is show 1282, so if you go to 1282.pwop.me, that brings you to a nice little tool called squirrel squirrel <laughs> it's actually You've squirrel. Met my dog you know about squirrels squirrel yeah so it the actual description of this is it's a server driven update mechanism for native apps but the tagline is it's like click once but works <laughs> trademark they even trademark right, yeah. that tagline it's like click once but works tm <laughs> i love it <laughs> sorry brian noise but uh the world is brian was problems. the only person who could make click once work yeah well the, the problem i had with click once as i've said a couple of times is that when your customer has uh, Norton antivirus installed or anything like right. that, it, 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 it thinks click once uh, updates are hostile. Cause yeah. let's face it, it is sort of phoning home and downloading stuff and changing EXEs. It looks a lot like a virus. Yeah. It looks exactly like a virus. It's or true. malware anyway. Yeah. I'm with you. But anyway, what's cool about Squirrel is that they have a Windows version, a Mac version, an iOS version, and then they have. Uh, the server side. Okay. Uh, all different, you know, parts of this project. And it, it's pretty cool. And written natively, too. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, there you go. All right. Yeah. No, this is... I like this cross-plat solution. That's that's cool stuff. Nice find, man. Yeah. It may make Windows apps actually fun to write again. Now nah, you're talking crazy talk. <laughs> I love writing Windows apps. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's just something to be said for opening a browser and everything's right there. Instant, no updates. But anyway, I'm digressing. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1010. That's 1010, which is from a while ago now. That's July of 2014. It's the show we did with David Graham when we were talking about teaching new developers, which is, you know, an ongoing conversation. No two ways about it. Most of these comments are from a couple of years ago, but I think they're super relevant. Yeah. And Digipug, which is an awesome name, by the mm. way, said, I really enjoyed this episode as a .NET focused developer who lacks a comm side degree. I am always looking for ways to improve and learn new things. What I find to be extremely difficult is finding any reviews on the various boot camps and relatively short term schools like this one, Coder Camps, because we did talk about Coder Camps. Right. Yeah. 
I love the concept, but for the price, I badly want to have some assurance that I'm going for the best education I could possibly acquire. It would be phenomenal if .NET Rocks decided to do a smackdown of the best boot camps or other short-term schools and other contenders that I might not yet be aware of. And thanks for all the great content. And I think, you know, this is a really interesting concept because most students are only ever going to take one of these courses, right? One of these yeah. these quick 16-week things. And even if they took another one, how do you compare them? Right. You're only a newbie once. Yep. So I think it's a really tough thing to to actually evaluate. In some ways, maybe the best source of evaluation would be an employer that employed students from multiple schools. Right. And could sort of evaluate their yield. But, you, you know, in order for them to be meaningful numbers, you'd have to – You'd have, it'd have to be a place that took on literally a dozen from each so that you sort of even out the that was an exceptional person aspect of this. Mm. Mm. So I think it's a really interesting problem to be able to assess effectively the quality of an education. It's not yeah. an easy thing to figure out. I'd like to hear what Alec has to say about that after we uh, introduce him here. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, Digipug, thank you so much for your comment. Donnet Rocks this mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Donnet Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via any of the social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And you should follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We install him with click once. And that brings us to our guest, Alec Lozarescu. He's a 17-year veteran of the digital education domain, and he's currently CTO of LearnBop, a .NET-based K-12 education startup. His passion is helping people learn and work more effectively, aided by technology and lean, data-driven principles. Alec has spoken at Amazon, Microsoft, the New York City CTO Summit, and various events. He has served as an organizer for various community events in New York and New Jersey, including the energized 300-plus crowd at SQL Saturday, New York City. Alec can be found at Alec1A on Twitter, also at his blog, PragmaticDevOps.com, and also contributing on DevOps.com. Welcome, Alec. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. Really happy to, to be here. Really happy to have you. Um, yeah, first of all, what did you think of the comment, Richard Red? Yeah, I, I think um, education is really a space where it's it's going to change so much. And we're still kind of trying things out, I think, um, between the code camps and kind of Coursera and those on online systems. It's It's really trying to solve that problem of the cost that keeps going up. But on the other hand, there's so much trust built in with all these years on a, on a degree that how, how do you replicate that and, and make sure that people coming out of whatever system are, are actually qualified. Right. So it, it, it's a tough problem. Yeah. Cause these students all have different demands and, and different levels of education going in. And as Richard said, you know, they're only newbies once. So you can't go back. And once you've tried something, you can't go back and try something else. Yeah, and and, and it, it's I, I'm a big fan of experimenting, but when it comes to like someone's future life and career, that that's that's a little bit of a tough pill to uh, to kind of force that on someone. If people want to try different things out and they kind of know what they're getting into, um, I'm all for it. But in, in the terms of like a, a government level to support certain things or kind of lay out a way to do things, it, it, it's 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 a tough thing. And you know, I think that's true of all education. And while I'm a I'm a big believer in the the sort of four year program and the generalities that that brings in a university education, because I think they're, that those things are valuable. When it comes to computing science, it's worse still because traditional computing science, the the science of programming, of designing languages and operating systems, like that we don't need as much science as we need the engineering hmm. these days. Right. So you know, there's that double whammy of not only there's a question of the the relevance of of uh of the style of education but also the ability to educate on what's meaningful in the marketplace so alec what has been your experience with startups beyond the one that you're in now have is this your first or uh or have you done more before or been involved with more this is my first startup um i was at a small company when i was right out of college but it, it wasn't a it wasn't a startup by kind of what I would consider a startup. So some things in common, small company and startups, but but they are a little bit different. 
So um, obviously your startup is an education startup. Startups all look different. And when is a startup not a startup? How do you define that word? So I think it's really about when they've grown to a really huge amount, they become a household name. They they hire hundreds of engineers, perhaps, and that that really changes how they're structured. Um, a lot of startups start off with the idea of being very flat and and transparent and not a lot of management. But when you have hundreds of people, you you better you better figure something out. Um, cause the cost of communication and all those other procedures and working together really changes dramatically. So, mm-hmm. and I, I don't, I don't know what you call them once they're past that. Um, enterprise startups sounds like a really terrible oxymoron, but right. I, haven't, I've, <laughs> I haven't found a better term than that. Um, but there, there's a list of things that they all startups maybe have in common. Yeah. And, and I think. The idea of reaching for high growth, whether they get there or not, uh, just structuring for that, I think is the biggest differentiator between a small company and a startup. Uh, if you look at kind of the growth charts for something like Facebook or even WhatsApp, when they grew to millions and hundreds of millions and uh, Facebook billions of people, it's, it's just astonishing. And that really, it, it, it changes how you, how you build a company. And in some ways, it adds more risk too. I mean, you can try to, to grow at that rate by throwing a lot of money and people at problems. So you can risk running out of money, lots of hours, uh, and potentially even for the people there, the people that kind of build it up from the start may not be the people that, uh, the VCs and others think can take it to the next level. So. Uh, if you've seen Silicon Valley, there's kind of a cliffhanger at the end where the guy who started the company uh, went through all these travails to try to keep it going. And at the end, they're, they're thinking maybe he's not the one to continue leading it. So that that's certainly a big risk. Do you think the funding side of a business makes it more of a startup? Like, the you know, I, I think of startups as the thing that where you do the land grab, you grow as fast as possible. Don't worry about making money until you have enough market share that you can sort of switch over to a revenue model. And that takes cash. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, you you can bootstrap somewhat. And uh, I think just doing uh, nothing but grabbing money without at least having a plan to get somewhere has fallen a little bit out of favor recently. I think in the the past, there's a lot more of that. Um, But the, the constant need to kind of prove that you're worthy of getting more funding and you're reaching these growth targets is definitely part of a kind of startup life. And, and the culture is very different too. Um, there's a lot of fluidity in the roles and there's a, there's like a can do attitude. And I mean, it's really only mm. hubris if you fail. Some of these companies really want to change the world and they think they can do it. And you hear mostly about the ones that are successful. Yeah, I, I do remember uh, hearing in the news and, and seeing some stories in the, you know, before the bust in the early 2000s of, you know, people went startup crazy, tech startup crazy. And I remember seeing a story of these guys who had no product, no plan. They, they were, what they were selling was attitude and they, they got like millions of dollars in venture capital and they weren't really doing anything and they were proud of it. They just sat around and say, you know, we're just awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was unbelievable. So I guess, you know, those days are over, but, uh, you would uh, hope you would hope, <laughs> but there does seem to be, um, less, uh, crazy funding these days. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of focused funding where kind of a lot of the big players just keep getting bigger. Um, people are placing a lot of bets kind of later on. And the exits are taking longer where companies are getting bigger and bigger and they're still private. They're not IPOing as, as often or as, as quickly. So it, the dynamics have changed a bit in that respect. Yeah. And part of that, in my view these days, is that the funding models have changed so much. Most of the people that are funding these things uh, are already the billionaires. You know, you, you see a lot of these projects that, that come out that way, that they don't IPO early and they, you know, they don't need the rapid exit and so forth. They don't actually capitalize their stock offering to their employees, which I think is the biggest strain on all of that because the primary investors just don't need it. They're, they're willing to wait. Right. And, and that also kind of increases the risk proposition of uh, how long are you going to keep going? And I, I think probably 
even worse than a failing startup is kind of a zombie startup where you're still going along. You haven't reached a point where you're out of money, but you're not really growing as much. So you're just kind of waiting and seeing what happens and still pushing through really hard, but not necessarily uh, getting anywhere. Yeah, that is a horrible state. Or the, the six-year-old quote, startup, right? It's like, at what point were you just a company that's not making money? <laughs> yeah. You know, and the funny one is like, there are super famous startups that are still not really making money. Look at Twitter. Like, we, I, I use it. I know Carl certainly uses it. I imagine you do too, Alec, but mm -hmm. that company still hasn't figured out how to make money. Right. Yeah. And I think because it's been around so long and it has kind of popular celebrities, there's, there's this expectation that they should be minting money. So e even if they come up with some way to do better than they're doing now, um, how, how can they live up to the hype that they've built up so far? So obviously an investor, before they invest their real money, they need to assess the risk. And at a certain, at a certain point, you come down to this big question mark because Everything is inherently risky, especially in technology. If some other company comes up and, and offers what you're offering for free, you're pretty much done, you know, and if they have better promotion than you do, like so many things outside of your control can happen. Um, but risk with a capital R is really the, the thing that brings them down, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and how do you get around that? I mean, maybe you have a patent and the whole idea of software patents is, is a very, very difficult solution to yeah. reconcile. You can kind of see both sides of that. But yeah, uh, always, there's always someone chasing at your heels and it's either going to be a, some scrappy other company or some giant company that, that's now entering your market. So how does .NET fit into this whole equation? Because I don't think you hear a lot about startups using .NET at all. Yeah, and, and, I, and I wondered that myself. Um, so I, I, I started kind of thinking about it and looking into it. Um, so I, I looked at the server costs because if you ask a bunch of people, well, do you want to have servers that are essentially uh, free for the OS or pay for the OS? Um, but really, there's, there seems to be like roughly 75% premium for running like a, a Windows server with IIS in the cloud versus Linux. And 75% is not really inconsequential, but how much of your costs is really the server farm? Um, it right. depends on your business. If you're running like a B2B business and you get a good amount of money for each customer and uh, you have a controllable amount of load. It, it's totally noise level. Um, yeah. That that server cost is not going to matter. Well, and, and, and there's lots of businesses where, I mean, the compute power is a direct cost of goods, which means you make more money, you have more compute. It just doesn't make any difference. The last thing I worry about is the cost of the gear. I'm wondering if this is more of a cultural thing, you know, that, Startups came out of the Silicon Valley, and that was uh, not a .NET place. I, I, I think that's a lot of it. And um, you certainly, if you talk to a bunch of developers, if you kind of categorize them, and not that there's anything wrong with like different groups, but kind of the traditional drag and drop web forms development that kind of started early on, or just people doing in internal reports, it's a very different um a mindset from doing like an internet scalable company. So right. it's a matter of finding the right people. And you had mentioned it's uh, the server cost is minimal. Uh, but if you're running a, like a freemium type company, now you essentially have a ton of freeloaders that uh, are on the site where you're hoping they'll eventually upgrade to a subscription or, or buy some little knickknack in your site. And, and now the server cost could get quite a, quite a high before you figure out how to monetize that. So I, I think that's probably another side of it where people don't want to necessarily take that risk. We also forget that um, the, the whole advent of cloud computing and Linux cloud computing, which, you know, is, is very cheap, hasn't been around, has only been around for a few years. Uh, before that, we, we, we were concerned about uh, hardware, not only that, but space and, uh, data centers and and all that stuff it was a lot to manage do you remember the picture uh well actually we saw the original google stack at the computer museum in and outside of san jose i think it was in santa clara 
And they had built all those machines themselves. They were just motherboards sitting in a plywood rack. And it was all about getting the cost down on the hardware as much as possible. So it kind of makes sense when you're dealing with a thing that doesn't directly make money that way to, to just absolutely pare costs down to the minimum. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think kind of the kind of the infrastructure and DevOps story in .NET uh, has been kind of moving forward in recent years. But historically, um, PowerShell was neat, but it was so different from anything else people have used, whether Windows or otherwise. Um, all the other scripting languages are are quite a paradigm shift away from that. And just Windows itself, um, kind of the, the boot speed, the, the reboot, and those uh, items that are needed when you do patching and doing auto scaling. If you want to really run lean and only bring on extra servers when, uh, your CPU spikes or error metric you're using, if, if it could take, uh, over 10 minutes for that server to come up, that, that's kind of a, a tough pill to swallow. Kind of meaningless at that point. Yeah. Mm hmm. But, I mean, it's not that way anymore, right? I mean, granted, the cloud story is recent. And uh, you really only want to talk about it sort of post the Great Recession, so 2009, 2010. Mm. So it's only been five, six years we've sort of had this environment. Uh, I mean, we talk, we normally only ever talk about Azure and, and AWS. But the winner down in the Silicon Valley, as far as I can tell, is the Google Cloud. Mm -hmm. Like that thing seems to be built for Silicon Valley startups. We uh, also have uh, a new .NET, don't we? I mean, it's all open source now. You, you're finding uh, not so much reliance on more expensive options like SQL Server, and now you're getting uh, a lot more document databases and things like that, in-memory databases. Uh, it's just the, the cost just continues to drop. And so I imagine that in this current environment with all this open source.net stuff, you should probably see an increase in uh, startups using .NET. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think these things kind of take time to have the perceptions change. But Microsoft has really made really meaningful steps. Uh, it started off with kind of mistrust on what they were saying about open source, but especially with uh, Satya coming on and yeah. some of the recent changes, um, Node.js is first class citizen, Redis is first class, right. um, SQL Server, that was a surprising uh, announcement. Yeah. But again, if you could have everything running inside of uh, Linux for a lot of your infrastructure side and even, even some of the, uh, the web side, you can mix things and you can kind of use what you what you need for the right area of your software. You don't have to kind of make a hard choice. Um, the other thing is that Microsoft's partnered with Chef and Puppet. So in the configuration management space, they're kind of the two top players. So now you can use those same tools for managing uh, how your servers get configured, uh, how updates happen, all of that. And you're not having a separate tool chain, uh, separate skills across platforms. So you can start using a lot of those same tools everywhere and not not have a, a, a big difference and a completely different idea of, all right, I'm on Windows, I'm going to do things one way, or I'm on Linux, I'm going to do things this totally different way. Although you do have this challenge of trying to consolidate these two worlds. Most of the folks I've met that know their way around Chef and Puppet have never installed a Windows server. And most of the folks I know who know how to run a Windows server well just can't even get their heads around Chef and Puppet. It's such a different way to think. It is. And honestly, I went the route of uh, having someone on my team that comes from the, the Linux side and kind of going through some of the Windows stuff because it seems kind of historically an easier lift to go that way than, than the other way. Interesting. So, although I got to think having the two of you in the room being nice to each other, right? <laughs> Eat with, each with half the skill set needed. You, you know, that's got to be the best way to get there. Yeah, definitely. It, it's, yeah, it's the question is who's hostile to who these days? Mm. I think, I think more and more the Microsoft, Microsoft people in general have woken up to this idea of there's a bigger world out there and you need to know more. Yeah. And, and certainly we can, we can learn from some of the, like the methodologies and, and tools in Linux, um, that have been built for kind of distributed systems and, the early clouds were, were based on them. So 
they they do have a, a leg up historically. I I think a lot has kind of come through to the Windows space for sure recently, and it's it's kind of the same story as when Java started out, and then you started working in .NET, and a bunch of things are ported over, and the J changed to an N, and now now it's like a pretty good group on both sides. Yeah, it's just a question of. It's not enough that you're as good as Linux. If they're going to choose a new set of tools over the old set of tools, there has to be an advantage. Yeah, for sure. Do you find that um, there's cultural clashes with traditional .NET developers, you know, coming from a maybe a drag and drop forms development or internal business guys and, um, you know, people who are more experienced at startups, maybe not on .NET? I think depending on the com- company you come from, you're you're less used to dealing with kind of server type things or or the OS or or uh, that side of things. You kind of you get an environment, you have control on your Windows system, you get things working there, and and you're you're pretty much done. Whereas now, I, I think we need people to to be a bit more aware of uh, the full end to end experience on how that code gets from your desk to the place where it's living and your end users are on it. And I think that kind of goes along also with the DevOps movements mm. where it's, it's not about throwing a code over the wall and then someone else is on call and someone else has to think about monitoring. I think those conversations have to have to happen with everyone in the room together, whether you have traditional dev skills or you're traditionally on the operations side, you don't necessarily have to have that full spectrum in a single person, though it happens a lot at startups uh, just because of hiring needs and and the scale of it. But even at bigger companies, uh, getting them in the room and and really having that open conversation where each side kind of brings their experience and the developers know where the skeletons are buried in the code. They mm. they'll know like what should be logged and monitored, and the operations folks will, will have better ideas on how to actually use the the tools to do that and working together is really the, the only way forward there. This is a conversation I have fairly often on the DevOps side, which is that technical debt is manifest in operations. And in, yeah. until those guys are in the same room, and you see this moment where the operations guy says, we, we find every couple of hours we have to do this to keep the server running. And then you see the dev who incurred the debt just sort of, put his hands, head in his hands, like, uh-oh, I did that. Do you have all .NET developers in your in, in LearnBop, or are there some that come from the Linux world? So I, I do have all .NET developers, and um, a lot of that is because the code base, uh, when I came on, there was already a code base in place. And also because of uh, my history in .NET and kind of the people I knew, I was able to bring some people over. Uh, so it, it felt like too much of a lift to kind of split a code base that early on in, in the startup. Mm-hmm. So I think we're trying to build things in a, in a modern manner within .NET, mm-hmm. uh, create things in web API. Uh, so if we grow in the future to some staggering amount and we need to bring in other types of uh, technologies, it, it won't be... Uh, a big impedance going from uh, one to the other. But I mean, right. I think at this point, we're, uh, we're pretty solid on the .NET for the, the end user facing code. And we're using mostly Linux stuff for all the infrastructure side. So yeah. we use uh, Elasticsearch Logstash Kibana. We pump all the logs there, whether they're Windows event logs, uh, IIS logs, uh, application logs, everything goes through Log4Net and then pulled over there. So it gives us a nice place to kind of search for things and, and uh, do analysis there. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Oh, yeah. It's time to announce my new startup that teaches teaching startups how to teach startups how to start up. <laughs> <laughs> they actually have those. I know. <laughs> <laughs> now there's one more. <laughs> uh, actually, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Hey, are you building a mobile application for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone? Well, that doesn't have to leave you yearning for the zombie apocalypse. Life is worth living. We promise. There's definitely a better way, and it's the Telerik platform. It not only helps you build awesome cross-platform mobile apps fast, but it's also a complete solution that supports the entire spectrum 
of your development needs. From design, build and test, to deploy, manage, and measure, you're covered. Try it for free at Telerik.com slash platform. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Lawrence McKenzie. Ah, congratulations, Lawrence. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Lawrence. And Lawrence just won the Telerik Dev Craft Collection, a big pile of awesome from our friends at Telerik. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And we'd like to ask our guests, Alec, if you had $5,000 to spend right now on technology, what would you buy? So I, I always have trouble keeping engaged when I'm exercising, like just running or swimming laps is just so boring. But if I'm visiting somewhere, I'm in the ocean and I'm kind of snorkeling, looking at fish, I can I can do it for hours. So I'd like to get like a HoloLens dev kit ah. and like a treadmill and try to find some way to program some like exploration of uh, some fun place on Earth or even like a, a swimming experience and searching for things. Uh, just, ha- just have something a little more interesting to kind of keep you moving. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I have a, a, a treadmill desk and on it is a TV where, I, you know, a smart TV where I watch old reruns on Amazon and Netflix and stuff. And that's a, it's a nice commitment device. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Commitment device is an interesting term. It is an interesting term. I learned that from Freakonomics, actually. Nice. Another good podcast. So uh, the tools are getting easier, obviously, that uh, help us not only do DevOps, but Dev and Ops, and all the startup tools that we're using. You're, you're using PowerShell now? Yeah, we're using PowerShell. We're using Chef. Uh, we have a little bit of Python. We have a bunch of vendor tools that we use. Um New Relic actually just added async support for .NET, so that that was really cool to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use Raygun for the the error handling. Yeah, um, a, a bunch more things just for like monitoring and aggregating uh, Datadog. So we we try to focus on what we need to build for a user experience and and not so much kind of the the side plumbing, which is which is a big change for when I was at a small company where uh, we kind of had to make all that side plumbing. And that, that took time away from the main, uh, the main work, but otherwise we didn't have enough visibility on what was going on. Mm. Yeah. It, it's interesting, especially the instrumentation side, because you can waste a lot of time trying to build your own instrumentation. These tools like Raygun and New Relic and so forth, they do so much, but it takes a while to figure out how to actually get meaningful data out of them. Yeah, you, you do have to kind of tweak your rules and we actually have to tweak our error messages. We used to have these nice error messages that told you the, the ID of, of uh, whatever went wrong, like uh, this mm-hmm. item ID and, and uh, Raygun would just very happily create one line item error group for every single unique ID. <laughs> so nice. That, that, that was not good. So we switched over to actually, um, putting the ID information in like the exception data bag type thing to let, to let it keep grouping and, uh, aggregate those emails and not kind of bug us for every little thing. So you're totally right. Even if you're not building your own tools, you do have to spend some time tweaking uh, the tools you are using. Yeah. Logging everything seems like a nice idea until you're the one who has to read those logs. Yeah. Mm. And more importantly, actually figure out what happened, what should we do to fix it? Like that's, that turns out to be a really hard question to answer. Yeah, and I've I've started kind of making a list of uh, common fields and common names. So if we have logs going across transactions or or things going on with different teams or services, we can at least have some commonality of like where things started, how long they took, um, and just get a little more sanity on the whole process. For sure. Hey, just mentioning Chef, uh I thought it, its scripting language was Ruby. Has that been a big obstacle or or a consequential thing at all? Well, it hasn't because the 
the Linux guy I hired was already uh, familiar with that. So I, th mm, I think that's, okay. again, we're kind of going from the Linux side and learning a bit of Windows on the infrastructure DevOps side worked out well. And it wasn't honestly something I had planned uh, from the start, like, oh, I'm definitely going to hire a Linux guy. It's it's just after a lot of interviewing and going through different people and seeing like who could best fit in this kind of mixed world now, um, that turned out to be uh, an easier uh, way to go. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, and it kind of makes sense as to what skills you're, you're really after. How much of this stuff are you running in the cloud and how much do you run on-prem? So we have absolutely nothing on-prem other than a, a little server that kind of pulls some backups for us and, and does it off-site. So everything's in Amazon for us. All our dev tools, uh, CI environments, uh, absolutely everything. Hmm. And, and it's, and it's great. Um, cause I've had servers in the office and I've been there looking at the raid rebuilds and pulling someone next to me and making sure we read every line carefully together so we don't uh, do the wrong thing. So this is, uh, this is refreshing. Running infrastructure says the guy who does it every day hmm. sucks. <laughs> but it's not the job you have so many other things to do so right. true used to be a badge of honor you know like hey i can fix anything here yeah yeah but you <laughs> know two thousand years ago the badge of honor was smacking yourself with a whip till you were bloody i'm trying to figure out the difference <laughs> well I've, I've cut myself on enough computer cases so maybe that's the new thing <laughs> <laughs> i remember you know i've always put together my own pcs and uh, until, you know, laptops sort of took over. But I remember back in late nineties, putting together a PC where the, the motherboard and the case didn't line up, you know, and you couldn't screw the motherboard in. It's just like one of those aggravating things. Uh. And that, you know, those, those problems went away after a while, but there was a time there where it was, you know, S cards didn't seat properly. There wasn't any, I may, maybe there were standards, but people just didn't adhere to them. Aggravating. Yeah. It's sta the <laughs> standards versus standards, but it's also, again, how far away are you from what you were needing to do? Right. And I, I feel like I'm a shade tree hardware guy. Like I really enjoy tinkering with my machines right up until I have work to do and my machine's not behaving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Although what, the way I've solved that is by having many, many machines. There's always one of them working anyway. So is there anything Windows on the Amazon side or is it all Linux? Uh, so, yeah, all our all our web servers for the code um, are Windows. So we just run our own instances there inside of Beanstalk. We run SQL Server. So we have our, our own setup there on just uh, those plain uh, uh, Windows AMIs that they've got there. Okay. So these are all VMs then? Yeah. Okay. Have you looked into any of the stuff that Azure is doing or was this a deliberate uh, decision? So that, that was another thing I, I inherited. I, I have been looking at, at uh, what's going on in Azure recently and um, definitely some nice improvements there. I actually listened to a show recently talking about uh, how they're improving like the a CI pipeline in there and mm. like a continuous uh, delivery. So I, I, I like where it's going. Uh, we just kind of started in Amazon and we've, we've gotten familiar with it and it, it's, it's very tweaky. Um, so I think it comes from a kind of different place. I think Azure was a, a leader in platform as a service early on before right. people even understood it or, or knew what to do with it. And Amazon started at the infrastructure as a service side and they both kind of been moving to meet in the middle. Um, but I think Amazon still kind of got that tweaky sense where if you really like to fiddle with every knob and yep. and uh, mess with everything, uh, you have the ability to do that. And you just pointed out the culture clash, uh, you know, that we're, we deal with every day. It's the, the difference between people who want to, you know, let the platform do all the work and who need to have control over every bit. Right. So and another thing that you have to be really careful of in the cloud is um, how much abstraction is there and do you really understand it? Um, if you're building for high availability, but you're on a cloud provider that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you've got two servers and they're not on the same switch or in the same uh, power grid area, uh, you don't have high availability. 
So right. the way the way uh, kind of some of the leading clouds are set up, they actually give you that information so you, you can make those proper decisions. Yeah, just because you've got it all automated uh, from a service provider doesn't mean you shouldn't understand how it actually works or at least validated, right? Like no disaster recovery solution is real until you've actually recovered. Yeah, absolutely. Are containers coming into your life yet? That's the new hotness, it seems, these days. Yeah, and I, I'm actually really excited about um, having uh, Windows containers with Docker because um, the, the boot speed is something that that should kind of dramatically improve. What boot and, speed? <laughs> <laughs> you can't even measure it. Yeah, exactly. So I, I can't wait for that. I, I was a little bit let down that uh, it's only going to be .NET Core on Windows Nano. There was, mm. there was a user voice where I was kind of going back and forth with uh, some of the Microsoft guys trying to make a case like, can you just kind of throw an exception if we do something you didn't bring in, but kind of let let us use the .NET Core with .NET 4? Because um, it's, it's a big ask to have to rewrite an existing legacy app uh, to move only to .NET Core. Um, yeah. sure we've got newer code and MVC and web API, but there's still a bunch of web form stuff and getting 100% over is, is tough, but I mean, we'd love to be on windows nano. Yeah. I'm, I'm still waiting to be wow. I like the idea of nano. I, I need the benchmarks. I want to really see that it makes a difference. And I guess that's sort of where the windows container stuff is too. I wouldn't put the stuff in production. You know, they're TP three with 2016, we're still a ways away from these products being real. Yeah, but I, I think just just even getting to this point is is something that would have been unimaginable two years ago. Um, having having actual first class Docker support for Windows um, that that's really cool, and I, I like where it's going to again bring more ability for someone to do like a an agile quick auto scaling uh system and and be on windows and not have to completely give up and uh do something in linux do it completely a different way uh yeah. i mean how long are your vms taking to start up so i think part of the delay is some some things beanstalk is doing behind the scenes it might be waiting uh, a little bit for certain things so we can generally come up within um, 15 to 20 minutes. And uh, then the deployment on top of that, um, if we just update the version, uh, is probably uh, maybe uh, five minutes or so. Mm. So it's... Yeah, that's pretty slow. Yeah, it's it's not as fast as, as we'd like. So especially for uh, like a CI environment, uh, definitely wouldn't run for production and the Windows Docker stuff for a while, but... If we could run it in CI and, and have that go uh, much more quickly, I'd, I'd be a big fan of that. Yeah, because I think about Azure website instances now, they come up in two minutes, roughly. Depends on the configuration to some degree, but for the most part, they're, they're, I thought they were fast enough. Like, that's pretty quick. But if it's 20 minutes, that means if I'm scaling for load, I provision way in advance. Yeah. I provision for peak. Yeah, so I mean, what we do, we do have the auto scaling based on the CPU, but we kind of prep it ahead of time based on like the hour where we know our traffic is. So we'll we'll drop yeah. a little when it's low, and we'll up a little before. So the auto scaling is basically the the surprise emergency. It's not it's not what we just do for day to day uh, up and down. Right. Yeah, but if you know you're about to do a launch and and a lot of people go to sign in stuff, you just provision a bunch of additional instances. Yeah, definitely. And then you know when it's going to wind down and you can shut some of those down. It's turn funny. Turning them off is pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. So LearnBop is all .NET guys, but yet you have to interact with these Linux systems, you know, on Amazon and things. And so if, uh, let's say, one of your guys has never used Linux before, is are, how do they go about learning how to use it? I mean, it's a, it is a... It's an operating system like everything else, but it is, you know, mostly text based and shell based. And is, is it, do you find that your guys have, um, uh, it's easy f for them to learn how to come up to speed on it? And do you have any training resources that you like to use? So, but my answer is a little bit of a cheat answer, but I think it's, it's actually a good thing to do. We, we try to build, um, interfaces around, uh, things they need to do to manage the infrastructure. Yeah. So we use TeamCity and um, all the deployment happens through that. 
So they just have to, uh, hit the, hit the buttons there for, uh, kicking off a new, uh, staging environment mm-hmm. and deploying it. So it's ready to, uh, be tested for live. We use Rundeck, uh, which is like, um, a job runner system that has some uh, neat features where it can actually pull uh, Amazon and look at tags and let it let a job run, for instance, on all the production nodes or part of the nodes. And we use that for our blue green deployment where after staging is up and everything looks uh, good, someone can just uh, hit the swap button and yeah. it goes through and uh, runs through probably like a 10 step automated process to safely move the traffic over using connection draining and all the other things. And uh, they don't have to worry about kind of logging on to the the Linux server and going through that. Uh, We use a centralized logging with the Elasticsearch log slash Kibana. So they have a web-based interface. They don't have to go onto a syslog server and tail that. So I get it. So you're you're basically saying that in today's environment, there is no need to learn the ins and outs or the, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of Linux. As a developer, there's less of that. Um, so we try to get that uh, on the system side to bubble up those features so you don't you don't have to log into servers in general, even to RDP for the most part. Um, if we do, it's only because something strange happened and this is kind of like the first time and we need to investigate. But everything else, we want to try to get an automated way to manage it, a centralized way to pull log search and, and do everything that needs to happen. Mm. It's an interesting aspect of automation is it means you don't have to memorize all those command line commands. Yeah. Until something surprising goes wrong. Yeah, that's and the then cl- that's you, it. De- you definitely need a, a group of people on your team that can, uh, that can uh, work through that, um, whether it's Linux or, or Windows. Yeah, agreed. And maybe at least one, you know, depending on how scalable you are. Yeah. I have not played with the Elk stack. Should we dig into this just a little bit? Sure. Uh, so... If you've used Splunk, it's kind of like the open source version of that, but not nearly as user friendly. Um, so <laughs> I, I've used Splunk when someone else was paying for it, a big company, and I thought it was amazing. And when I saw kind of their license model, I kudos to them for, for being able to get away with uh, charging per gigabyte that you store yourself. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so the Elka stack, what we do is on each Windows server, we have a, a syslog forwarder. So it takes any log we want on there, including the Windows logs, IS logs, and app logs. And it sends them to a syslog server on a, on a Linux machine. So we don't do any processing on the Windows servers themselves to keep it fast, keep it easy. Uh, we don't want to make a mistake in parsing and then the logs don't appear. So everything goes to that syslog server. Then from there, we're able to uh, pull the logs and grok them, which is essentially uh, the way they do their parsing, and break them out into fields and uh, push them into Logstash and Elasticsearch. And uh, those are Elasticsearch is kind of like a, a JSONy document light database. And then Kibana on top of that is the web front end that allows you to do uh, searches and visualizations. So that's kind of like the the Splunk dashboard side of things where you can start uh, looking for different patterns. But you are rolling your own dashboards and things like it's up to you to sort of put that all together. Yeah, it, 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 they have some built in uh, things, but it's up to you to kind of put the queries together and, and get that going. Um, the other thing we do is we have something called Remon, which is another open source project. And that allows you to analyze like a stream of log files and uh, using Clojure, decide uh, what you want to do with those logs. If you want to alert on them uh, at a certain threshold or uh, all sorts of other interesting things. It's, it's again, a, a little hard to use, but uh, it, it's pretty powerful. So you can really control uh, what you want to know about from your logs. Nice. So are you anticipating the core stuff? Like, is this a code base you're going to move to at some point? I, I'm going to wait and see once it comes out and what we can actually uh, do on it and, and how it goes. Um, I, I have not played with it too much. Because um, I saw even in the RC, there were significant uh, changes from uh, what was the previous beta. So yes. I, I was glad I didn't kind of take too much time uh, on that side. 
Uh, I'd love to do something in it, though, even as a proof of concept, and then kind of see what it would take to get part of the app over potentially. Um, I mean, everyone's kind of looking at microservices and, and breaking things up, and we've already moved to a bit more API-driven um, with Web API. So there might be things we can carve out and just kind of run something small and not as mission critical there to get a feel for it and then kind of plan for eventually shifting more things over if everything goes well. So, I mean, what I'm taking away from this is you can make a dartnet startup. It's just recognize that the start, some of the startup things you need to be able to do don't come from Microsoft. You have to look at further afield. Yeah, you, you can make a .NET startup. It's not going to be just .NET and Windows, though. Because um, mm-hmm. as, as a startup, you're not you're probably not going to be running like SCOM or some of the the fancy, expensive uh, Windows enterprise tools. So you, you're right. going to need some other some other way to manage things. And um, just in terms of like the the tool chain and the infrastructure, a lot of that is is probably going to be Linux based. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's where that stuff comes from. Yeah. So what's on your agenda? What's next for uh, what's next for you? So yeah, I mean, trying out .NET Core, um, we've we've got a we've got a neat product coming out for uh, families that uh, hopefully we'll get to burn the servers a bit with uh, the adoption of that. So looking forward to supporting that. And I mean, some of the neat things I'm looking at, uh, if we can kind of get the Docker story going. Uh, if you mix up like Web API and Docker, you've essentially got a way to do API microservices uh, mm. in the .NET space. And if you take something like Aka.NET and Docker, well, now you have reactive microservices. And yeah. that's like a buzzword trifecta. I mean, that, that's got to <laughs> be a win somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, let us know how it goes. We're always interested in hearing success stories. Definitely. And yeah, as far as .NET, um, if you're going to be starting a startup, if you have a, a good network of people you know that uh, are kind of ready to work in, in that sort of environment, uh, that that's always a huge help. So uh, don't just start something because uh, you think it would be neat. Try to think about uh, who you know that'll be able to help you. Great advice. Thanks a lot, Alec. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.